A prefatory note of caution, today's medieval text does make rather direct reference to sexual violence, so be forewarned and proceed as you choose. This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, October 31st, 2017, episode 46, concerning the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Let me weave for you a tale of terror. It was a dark and stormy night. Lightning flashed, thunder rolled. Suddenly, everything went dark. The low, comforting rumble of the furnace fan cut out, the faint hum of the speakers decayed to nothing, and silence and darkness enveloped me. Only one sound continued, a rhythmic pulsing. Could it be the sound of my own heart beating, quickening with fear? No, it was the alarm on the uninterruptible power supply that was supposed to keep my desktop computer running long enough in the case of a power failure to allow me to shut everything down properly. In fact, the computer will even do that on its own when it detects it's been switched over to battery power. But some dead thing was in my house, a destroyer of all good and light. And that dead thing was the battery in the UPC. Or undead, perhaps. It had apparently... Enough juice to power the alarm, but not enough to stop the computer from losing power instantly, along with every other appliance in the house. A few minutes later, the power comes back on. But it was late at night, so I just went on to bed. In the morning, I started the computer up. It booted. It went to the Windows desktop. Spooky Windows desktop. Uh, I went to download uh, the newest podcast in my subscriptions in iTunes and check my mail, and I noticed everything was responding very slowly. Even mouse clicks were lagging behind by seconds. So I figured I'd do a full restart. Maybe that hard shutdown last night had left some junk in the memory or something. And that's the last time I've seen my Windows desktop in over a week now, except for one brief hope-inspiring, then hope-shattering moment When it showed my wallpaper and most of the icons, though without any labels under them, and a taskbar, and then a stack of blank and oddly shaped error message pop-up windows, like one was a tall, thin column, which is never the shape of an error message, but sometimes the shape of a tombstone, I couldn't interact with anything, and after ten minutes the wallpaper turned black, I'm a bit surprised it didn't start dripping blood. Then the icons disappeared into the darkness, and finally the error messages even went away, um, possibly due to lots of random key tapping and clicking I was trying, and all I was left with was a lonely white cursor arrow on a black screen. But you, dear listener, are not the IT hotline, so I will not bother you with further details of my experience, though rest assured, I did turn it off and on again, uh, more times than I can count. Anyway, I think I'm finally getting to the point in the grieving process where I realize that there just is no salvaging of my Windows installation, and I'll just have to format the hard disk and reinstall, hoping that the disk itself is recoverable, because uh, I'm not in a good position right now to buy a brand new hard drive. 
Um, but have no fear. All my personal data is fine, and all the show data and old recordings are fine, more importantly. Um, all that stored on a separate drive and backed up, I am at least that responsible. Uh, but what's not backed up is the hundreds of gigabytes of applications and games that I had installed, most of which I had purchased digitally, since we live in the 21st century, um, which means I don't have disks for them, which means I have to re-download all of them, and my internet provider has a monthly data cap, so it actually does go just beyond a mere inconvenience into something with some real costs to me outside my labor, this particular hard drive failure. Uh, this little horror story is not how I hoped to ring in our third anniversary. That's right, it's Halloween, which means we're entering into our fourth year of Medieval Death Trip. I'm very pleased with how the show is going, and I continue to love doing it, and I'm delighted by the feedback I get from you. Uh, I'd rather wish our episode numbers at this point were closer to hitting a 24-per-year goal that I'd set at the beginning, um, but at least we are doing better than just 12 a year. Uh, I'm working on some ways to make the recording process a little more regularized, uh, finding other options than just waiting for an evening where uh, I'm able to stay up late enough that my neighborhood has gone quiet, uh, and also where my allergies aren't acting up so that I have the voice of a bog monster. Lately, that's been an especially hard task, which is why the schedule has been somewhat staggered this autumn. As much as I'd love to lay all the blame on my UPC and computer, um, all that disaster has really affected is the completion of uh, the previous episode and this one. For this episode, I'll tell another tale of terror, uh, this time an actual medieval one. We're going to hear two versions of King Arthur's encounter with the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. First, we'll get the story in a rather simple and straightforward form from Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur, uh, written in the mid to late 1400s. Then we'll go back a few decades in that century to hear a poetic version from what was almost certainly one of Mallory's own sources, the anonymously authored alliterative Mort Arthur. Arthur's fight with this giant has been a major focus of interpretive attention, and there's more criticism on it than I could ever possibly hope to cover, um, but also of poetic uh, or narrative attention. It appears in some of the earliest Arthurian material uh, we've got, including Leomon, Wace, and Geoffrey of Monmouth, uh, though some of the details change over time. Perhaps the most detailed treatment comes in the alliterative Mort Arthur, uh, or so the late Arthurian scholar John Finlayson argues, where he says it rises from being just one in a series of tests of Arthur's prowess to a symbolic battle of good versus evil, uh, specifically Christian good as embodied by a Christian king versus evil, um, and a king who is destined for a tragic fall from the state of grace, which makes it all the more significant. Several of the details that first occur in the alliterative Mort go on to be repeated in Mallory, um, though in a rather more prosaic style. I've come to enjoy Mallory more over time, uh, but I still always feel a bit when I'm reading him that I'm getting a kind of Cliff Notes abstract of the story, uh, which, to be fair, is more or less all Mallory is claiming to be doing in the first place. But bare bones is, I think, a fair description of his style. It also tends to be paratactic, relying heavily on a and-then-and-then-and-then structure and pattern, uh, which is the common syntax of oral storytelling and can certainly be effective. But I have to admit, despite my grand claims last episode about embracing earlier stylistic conventions, uh, I have to admit that it can come off a bit tedious in Mallory. 
uh, in my personal opinion. Um, there's a reason why he's often adapted uh, and not so often quoted. Since we're getting two versions of the same basic story, uh, I have a special kind of luxury this episode in that I can let you take in the story with minimal introduction and then afterwards come in and point out some interesting features and details to look for that you can then actually go on to look for as we hear the second version. Uh, so I don't have to worry about spoiling anything here at the start. Uh, of course, I get this boon when I'm doing an especially famous episode that many of you have quite possibly read before in one form or another, where suspense isn't an issue. Uh, oh well. Let's go ahead and hear Mallory's version. Uh, the context is that King Arthur, still young in his reign, has landed his army on the continent in Normandy and is preparing to go and fight the Emperor Lucius of Rome uh, and essentially establish dominion over most of Europe. While he's there in camp on the Norman coast, he gets a messenger who tells him of a terrible thing that is afflicting their countryside. And that's where we'll start. I'll be reading from a lightly modernized version of Mallory's late Middle English, um, which doesn't really require much modernization beyond uh, updating the spellings uh, for it to be pretty readable for a modern audience. Or I think so anyway. Um, but here it is, so you can decide for yourself. Then came to him a husbandman of the country, and told him how there was in the country of Constantine beside Brittany a great giant, which had slain, murdered, and devoured much people of the country, and had been sustained seven year with the children of the commons of that land, insomuch that all the children be all slain and destroyed. And now late he hath taken the Duchess of Brittany as she rode with her household, and hath led her to his lodging which is in a mountain, for to ravish and lie by her to her life's end. And many people followed her, more than five hundred, but all they might not rescue her, but they left her shrieking and crying lamentably, wherefore I suppose that he hath slain her in fulfilling his foul lust of lechery. She was wife unto thy cousin, Sir Howell, whom we call full nigh of thy blood. Now, as thou art a rightful king, have pity on this lady, and revenge us all as thou art a noble conqueror. Alas, said King Arthur, this is a great mischief. I had liever than the best realm that I have that I had been a furlong way to for him for to have rescued that lady. Now, fellow, said King Arthur, canst thou bring me there as this giant haunteth? Yea, sir, said the good man, look yonder where thou seest those two great fires, there shalt thou find him, and more treasure than I suppose is in all France. When the king had understood this piteous case, he returned into his tent. Then he called to him Sir Kay and Sir Bedivere, and commanded them secretly to make ready horse and harness for himself and them twain. For after evensong he would ride on pilgrimage with them too, only unto St. Michael's Mount. And then anon he made him ready, and armed him at all points, and took his horse and his shield. And so they three departed thence, and rode forth as fast as ever they might, till that they came to the foreland of that mount. And there they alighted, and the king commanded them to tarry there, for he would himself go up into that mount. And so he ascended up into that hill till he came to a great fire, and there he found a careful widow wringing her hands and making great sorrow, sitting by a grave new maid. And then King Arthur saluted her, and demanded of her wherefore she made such lamentation, to whom she answered and said, 
Sir Knight, speak soft, for yonder is a devil. If he hear thee speak, he will come and destroy thee. I hold thee unhappy. What dost thou hear in this mountain? For if ye were such fifty as ye be, ye were not able to make resistance against this devil. Here lieth a duchess dead, the which was the fairest of all the world, wife to Sir Howell, Duke of Brittany. He hath murdered her in forcing her, and hath slit her unto the navel. Dame, said the king, I come from the noble conqueror King Arthur, for to treat with that tyrant for his liege people. Fie on such treaties, said she. He setteth not by the king, nor by no man else. But an if thou have brought Arthur's wife, Dame Guinevere, he shall be gladder than thou hadst given him half France. Beware, approach him not too nigh, for he hath vanquished fifteen kings, and made him a coat full of precious stones embroidered with their beards, which they sent him to have his love for salvation of their people at this last Christmas. And if thou wilt, speak with him at yonder great fire at supper. Well, said Arthur, I will accomplish my message for all your fearful words, and went forth by the crest of that hill, and saw where he sat at supper gnawing on the limb of a man, baking his broad limbs by the fire, and breechless, and three fair damosels turning three brooches, whereupon were broached twelve young children late-born, like young birds. When King Arthur beheld that piteous sight, he had great compassion on them, so that his heart bled for sorrow, and hailed him, saying in this wise, He that all the world wieldeth give thee short life and shameful death, and the devil have thy soul. Why hast thou murdered these young innocent children, and murdered this duchess? Therefore arise and dress thee, thou glutton, for this day thou shalt die of my hand. Then the glutton Anon started up, and took a great club in his hand, and smote at the king that his coronal fell to the earth. And the king hit him again, that he carved his belly and cut off his genitors, that his guts and his entrails fell down to the ground. Then the giant threw away his club, and caught the king in his arms and crushed his ribs. Then the three maidens kneeled down and called to Christ for help and comfort of Arthur. And then Arthur weltered and wrung, that he was otherwhile under and another time above, and so weltering and wallowing they rolled down the hill till they came to the sea mark. And ever as they so weltered, Arthur smote him with his dagger. And it fortuned they came to the place whereas the two knights were, and kept Arthur's horse. Then when they saw the king fast in the giant's arms, they came and loosed him. And then the king commanded Sir Kay to smite off the giant's head, and to set it upon a truncheon of a spear, and bear it to Sir Howell, and tell him that his enemy was slain. And after let this head be bound to a barbican, that all the people may see and behold it. And go ye two up to the mountain, and fetch me my shield, my sword, and the club of iron. And as for the treasure, take ye it, for ye shall find their goods out of number. So I have the kirtle and the club, I desire no more. This was the fiercest giant that ever I met with, save one in the mountain of Araby, which I overcame, but this was greater and fiercer. Then the knights fetched the club and the kirtle, and some of the treasure they took to themselves, and returned again to the host. And anon this was known through all the country, wherefore the people came and thanked the king. And he said again, Give thanks to God, and depart the goods among you. And after that King Arthur said and commanded his cousin Howell that he should ordain for a church to be builded on the same hill in the worship of St. Michael. So there's Mallory's version of Arthur's battle with the giant. 
Giants in medieval tales and folklore are interesting. Many cultures have giants of some kind in their mythologies, and for medieval Europe, you have all these different gigantic cultural roots intermingling to form one new tree. Biblical giants, Greek giants, Norse giants, Celtic giants. Medieval authors try to assimilate them all to a common mold, which they can't quite do. So you do have a diversity of giants and giant types. Um, But we can say that they have a few predominant traits. One of the clearest features of the giant is that he or she, though in the Middle Ages it's almost always a he, which leads to certain strong arguments from a gender studies or psychoanalytic interpretive approach, Uh, but one of their features is that they are humanoids, and as such they become mirrors or parodies of humanity. Usually they are of a wild man type. They live out in nature. They eschew human comforts and clothing. They often have bestial traits, including cannibalism. They are rapacious and violent. They're usually antisocial, living alone and terrorizing travelers or sometimes nearby communities. They are man without civilization. You see this kind of giant in Polyphemus the Cyclops, you see it in Grindel, and you see elements of it certainly in the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. But he taps into a slightly different vein of giant as well, one that owes a bit more to the tradition of Goliath, sort of mixed with a supernatural element. These are giants that represent an other to Christianity. They're not nature spirits, they're warriors and champions of heathen religions and empires. In the Song of Roland, for example, the Muslim knight Chernobyls, whom we talked about back in episode 24, has fiendish characteristics and superhuman strength, and you see other representations of Muslim warriors as devil-spawned giants. Uh, In fact, we've seen much the same thing done more recently in the graphic novel and movie 300, where Xerxes is turned into a giant. In this case, the giants aren't antisocial and uncivilized. They're more like evil counterparts to Christian knights. Um, That's evil from a medieval Christian point of view, of course. And they tend to be fought with as knights rather than as monsters. Killing a giant is one of the dominant motifs in the romances. It is often presented as the ultimate test of a knight's skill. Uh, And I suspect that's because it's a humanoid opponent, um, kind of the most exaggerated, outsized version of a knightly challenger you could have. I find it interesting that in modern tropes, we tend to think of the knight going off to slay a dragon. But while we certainly have some famous dragon slayers, giants far outnumber dragons in medieval tales. But the dragon has usurped the giant in modern knightly fantasy, and giants have acquired instead a kind of fairy tale baggage. I suspect if you think giant killer now, uh, you're much more likely to picture a wily peasant boy than an armored knight. It's an interesting change. I don't know how to explain it, but I bet there's a paper or article in it for someone. Anyway, how Arthur fights with the giant of Mont Saint-Michel calls up notions from both styles of giant, wild man and warrior. This giant is monstrous, a creature of insatiable desire, a cannibal and a rapist. His weapon is a club, but it's an iron club, not a tree trunk, but something wrought and crafted. He takes tribute from kings and seems to be willing to enter into some form of political arrangement. Um, This is emphasized even more in the alliterative Mort Arthur, where the old woman outside the cave assumes Arthur has come to strike a deal with the giant and pay the appropriate tribute. Sylvia Hewat, in her study of the giants of chivalric romance, 
notes that in two manuscript illustrations of this giant, uh, in one, he's depicted as a wild man type in a loincloth, and in the other, he's wearing full armor, essentially identical to what Arthur is wearing. She also points out that as much as Arthur is set in opposition to the giant, he reciprocates on the giant the same things the giant has been doing. Arthur has the giant dismembered, just as the giant has been dismembering his victims. In some versions, Arthur cuts off the giant's beard to display it, just as the giant collected the beards of the kings he defeated. There's an idea in there of giants representing the base drives of a warrior culture, pushed to extremes, but not antithetical to it. Touching on the gender issue, no one with even a passing familiarity with Freudian themes could miss the whole bit about Arthur cutting off the genitals of the giant, and then their tumbling down the mountain, sometimes one on top, sometimes the other on top, and then Arthur ultimately penetrating the emasculated giant again and again with his dagger. I mean, the sexual imagery is not even subtext. It's definitely asserting a particular idea of masculine dominance and linking sex and violence. And again, if you want to draw parallels between the giant and Arthur, they're both linked to sexual assault after a fashion. But to go much further down that rabbit hole, so to speak, uh, requires getting into some psychoanalytic theory that uh, we don't have the time for um, and that I'm just not really up for right now. Uh, So instead, let's move on to our second version of the story. As its name indicates, the alliterative Mort Arthur is written in alliterating Middle English verse. Despite only dating to the early 1400s, not that long before Mallory, its language is considerably more archaic as is the case with most of the poetry of the alliterative revival. Um, So it actually requires a fair bit more modernization to be comprehensible to a modern audience. Um, I've done this modernization here myself, uh, using the team's online edition of the text as a base, uh, and with lots of reference to the Middle English Dictionary hosted by the University of Michigan. When I've had to change words that aren't in our modern English vocabulary, uh, I've tried to pick synonyms that maintain the alliteration, sometimes at the expense of literal accuracy, um, and oftentimes not managing to preserve the alliteration. So if you hear a line that doesn't have consistent strong consonant sounds, you can bet that that's one I've been meddling with. I've also left a few Middle English words in. Some I think you'll be able to work out from context, uh, but I'll gloss a handful of them here before we begin. First, we have war law, spelled like outlaw, but with war at the start. Etymologically, though, it is not in parallel with outlaw. It is, in fact, a form of the word warlock, and it's one of the words applied to the giant. I didn't translate it as warlock, though, because our modern associations with that word are rather misleadingly specific. Warlock goes back to Old English, uh, with stems meaning oathbreaker. Because of that meaning, it gets applied to Satan, and thence to devils generally, uh, and then later to sorcerers who commune with devils. But in this case, it just means a fiend or a demon or a bad person. Next, we have freke, F-R-E-K-E. This is also a word used for the giant, and it's very tempting to just say freak, especially in a line like, there thou lies the foulsomest freak that formed was ever. In fact, I'm going to skew my pronunciation to not be freak, um, and I'm going to say freak instead, uh, because that is not what this word is. It comes from the old English freka, which just meant warrior, though with associations of dangerousness or boldness or even rapaciousness. 
Our modern freak, as in sideshow freak, has a somewhat obscure lineage, though it might ultimately come from Old English frikion, meaning to dance. And it seems to pop up in English in its modern usage only in the 16th century, where it means a whim or sudden causeless change, which we still have in freak accident, and in the phrase freak of nature, which means something like a happenstance of nature or a vagary of nature. And freak, used to mean a person with an atypical body, is just a shortened form of freak of nature. And then, using it to describe someone with unusual behavior, or making it a verb, as in to freak out, are extensions from that sideshow freak meaning. But freak or freak, as I'll say in our text, uh, is just a word for warrior or opponent. But it works too well with the alliteration to, to drop it, I think. I've also preserved several uses of birds, B-I-R-D-E-S. This is a term used to describe the women whom the giant is keeping as servants. Mallory called them damozels. Our poet calls them birds, meaning maidens. This etymology is also somewhat debated. Uh, Some think it comes from bird and is a bit of figurative language, basically the same usage as when Brits today call women birds, uh, or Americans say chicks. Uh, except without the slangy overtones. Alternatively, some think this is a variation on brides, which you will also sometimes find spelled with the R and the I reversed. Uh, I kind of like this explanation here just because it means the giant gets three brides, just like Dracula does. Anyway, the etymology doesn't really matter. Um, Just know that the giant doesn't have huge, magical avian creatures cooking his food for him. Um, These are the three captive women. I've also retained brooch, which is a bit archaic, um, but which we actually just heard in Mallory, where its meaning was, I think, more obvious based on context than it is in the poem. A brooch is a skewer or spit. The relationship to brooch as a piece of jewelry lies in the pin with which the brooch is attached, which is a kind of pointed stick or skewer. We'll also hear about chrismed children. Uh, That just means baptized, i.e. anointed with chrism. And it emphasizes the unchristian nature of the giant when he eats them. And lastly, just a fun word, mere swine. This is an animal that the giant is compared to. Mere swine means sea swine or sea pig and is a term for dolphin or porpoise or sometimes seal. The medieval mind seems to have a hard time classifying aquatic mammals. Incidentally, porpoise actually comes from late Latin porco piscis or hogfish. So the metaphor of sea pig has been there for a long time. Uh, And so if you have any dolphin lovers in your life, you now have a way to tease them over their love of the graceful sea pig. All right, let's get into the text. You will notice some things that are repeated here almost verbatim by Mallory, Uh, but this version has a lot of other details that Mallory is lacking. But to best be able to parse the poetic syntax, uh, I think it's helpful to know the basics of the story, which is why I started us off with Mallory. We're going to skip ahead here past the messenger scene and open as Arthur climbs the mountain to face off against the giant. Reaches the crag with gorges full high, to the crest of the cliff he climbs on loft. Cast up his visor, and keenly he looks, 
caught of the cold wind to encourage himself. Two fires he finds, flaming full high, the fourth of a furlong between them he walks, the way by the well strands he wandered alone, to wit of the war law, where that he dwells. He fares to the first fire, and even there he finds a weary, woeful widow wringing her hands and grieving on a grave grisly tears, new dug in the dirt since midday, it seemed. He saluted that sorrowful one with suitable words and asks after the fiend fairly thereafter. Then this woeful wife unhappily him greets, got up on her knees and clapped her hands, said, Careful man, thou carps too loud. If yon warlaw catch wind, he wars on us all. Cursed be the weight who deprived thee of thy wit that makes thee to wander here in these wild lakes. I warn thee, for worship, thou yearns after sorrow. Whither winds thou, warrior, unblessed thou seems? Weens thou to slay him with thy sword rich? Were thou fiercer than Wade or Wawain either, thou wins no worship, I warn thee before. Thou sallied unsafely to seek to these mounts, Six such men were too simple to assault him alone, for when thou see him with sight, no heart will serve thee to sign the cross for safety, so huge seems him. Thou art freely and fair and in thy first flower, but thou art doomed by my faith, and of that me despairs. Were such fifty on a field or on fair earth, the freak would with his fist fell you at once. Lo, here the duchess dear, today was she taken, deep delved and dead, buried in dirt. He hath murdered this mild one before midday was struck, without mercy on mold, I not what it meant. He has forced her, and defiled, and she is left dead. He slew her unslyly, and slit her to the navel. And here I have balmed her, and buried thereafter. For bale of the bootless, blithe be I never." Of all the friends she had, there followed none after but I, her foster mother of fifteen winter. To move off this mountain might I now never, but here be found on field till I be left dead. Then answers Sir Arthur to that old wife, I am come for the conqueror, courteous and gentle, as one of the noblest of Arthur's knights, messenger to this muck for amendment of the people, to melee with this master man that here this mount holds, to treat with this tyrant for treasure of lands, and to take truce for a time, to better may worth. Yea, these words are but waste, quoth this wife then, for both lands and estates full little by he sets, of rents nay of red gold reckons he never. For he will live outside of law, as himself thinks, without license of a leader, as lord in his own right. But he has a kirtle on, kept for himself, that was spun in Spain by special maids, and afterwards garnished in Greece readily together. It is hided all with hair, wholly all over, and bordered with the beards of burly kings, crisped and combed, that men may know each king by his color in the country that he keeps." Here the tribute he takes of fifteen realms, for each Easter Eve, however that it fall, they send it him soothly, for the sake of the people, securely at that season with certain knights. And he has asked after Arthur all this seven winter. Therefore dwells he here to outrage his people, till the Britain's king have burnished his lips and sent his beard to that bold one with his best men. Unless thou have brought that beard, bound thee no further, for it is a bootless bale if thou bids aught else, for he has more treasure to take when he likes than ever had Arthur or any of his elders. 
If thou have brought the beard, he'll be more blithe than if thou gave him Burgundy or Britain the greater. But look now, for charity, thou close thy lips, that thee no words escape, whatso betides. Look thy present be prompt, and press him but little, for he is at his supper. He will be easily grieved. And thou my counsel do, thou take off thy armor, and kneel in thy kirtle, and call him thy lord. He sups all this season on seven knave children, chopped in a charger of chalk-white silver, with pickle and powder of precious spices, and spirits full plenteous of Portuguese wines. Three baleful birds his brooches they turn, that await his bedtime, his bidding to work. Four such should be dead within four hours, ere his filth were filled that his flesh yearns. Yea, I have brought the beard, quoth he, the better me likes. Forthwith will I bound me, and bear it myself. But Leif, would thou teach me where that man dwells? I shall hallow thee, if I live, our Lord so me help. Fare fast to the fire, quoth she, that flames so high. There fills him that fiend, test him when thee likes. But thou must seek more south, sideways a little, for he will have sent himself six miles away. To the source of the smoke he sought at the swiftest, signed the cross for safety with certain words. And sideways of the man the sight had he reached, how unseemly that sought sat supping alone. He lay lengthwise, lodging unfair, the thigh of a man's limb lift up by the haunch, his back and his buttocks and his broad loins he bakes at the bale fire, and bridgeless him seemed. There were roasts full rude and rueful meats, men and beasts broached together, cauldrons full crammed of chrismed children. Some were spitted as roasts, and birds turned them. And then this comely king, because of his people, his heart bleeds for bale on the grass where he stands. Then he dressed on his shield, shies no longer, brandished his broadsword by the bright hilts, rushes toward that wretch right with a rude will, and hastily hails that hulk with haughty words. And now, all-wielding God that we worship all, give thee sorrow and grief, sought. There thou lies, the falsomest frake that formed was ever. Foully thou feeds thee, the fiend have thy soul. Here is cooking unclean, Carl, by my truth. Chaff of creatures all, thou cursed wretch. Because thou killed has these chrismed children, thou has martyrs made and brought out of life, that here are broached in the field and broken with thy hands. I shall mark thee thy mead, as thou hast much served, through might of St. Michael that this mount holds. And for this fair lady that thou hast left dead, and thus on the ground forced for filth of thyself. Dress thee now, dog-son, the devil have thy soul, for thou shalt die this day through dint of my hands. Then was aghast the glutton, and glared unfair. He grinned as a greyhound with grisly tusks. He gaped, he groaned fast with grumbling grimace for grief of the good king that him with anger greets. His hair and his forelock was matted together, and out of his face foam a half a foot large. His front and his forehead, all was it over as the skin of a frog, and freckled it seemed. Hooked nose as a hawk, and a hoary beard, and hairy to the eye holes with hanging brows. Harsh as a houndfish, how hard whoever looks, so was the hide of that hulk wholly all over. Ears he had huge and ugly to show, with eyes full horrible and blazing forsooth, flat-mouthed as a fluke with flaring lips, and the flesh in his foreteeth foul as a bear. 
His beard was bold and black that to his breast reached, gross as a mere swine, with carcass full huge, and all faltered the flesh in his foul lips, each wrinkle like a wolf head, it writhes out at once. Bull-necked was that brute, and broad in the shoulders, strong-breasted as a boar with bristles full large, rude arms as an oak with wrinkled sides, limbs and loins full loathsome, believe ye forsooth. Shovel-footed was that fellow, and bow-legged him seemed, with shanks unshapely shoving together. Thick thighs as an ogre, and thicker in the haunch, gross grown as a pig, full gruesome he looks. Who the length of the man carefully measures from the face to the foot was five fathoms long. Then starts he up sturdily on two stiff shanks, and soon he caught him a club, all of pure iron. He would have killed the king with his keen weapon, but through the craft of Christ, yet the carl failed. The crest and the crown, the clasps of silver, cleanly with his club, he crashed down at once. The king casts up his shield and covers him fair, and with his strong sword he stretches to him. Full on in the face the foeman he hits, that the burnished blade to the brain runs. He wiped his physiognomy with his foul hands, and strikes fast at his face fiercely thereafter. The king changes his foot, eschews a little. Had he not escaped that chop, evil would have won. He follows in fiercely, and fastens a dent high up on the haunch with his hard weapon, that he buried the sword half a foot deep. The hot blood of the hulk unto the hilt runs, even into the in-meat the giant he hits, just to the genitals, and jagged them in sunder. Then he roamed and roared, and rudely he strikes full eagerly at Arthur, and on the earth hits. A sword length within the ground he swats at once, that near swoons the king for sound of his dents. But yet the king deftly, full swiftly he works, swings in with the sword, that it the belly burst. Both the guts and the gore gushes out at once, that all begreases the grass on ground there he stands. Then he casts away the club, and seizes the king. On the crest of the crag he caught him in arms, and encloses him cleanly to crush in his ribs. So hard holds he that man, that near his heart bursts. Then the baleful birds bend to the earth, kneeling and crying they clap their hands. Christ comfort yon knight, and keep him from sorrow, and let never yon fiend fell him of life. Yet is that war-law so stout he welters him under, Rothly they writhe and wrestle together, welters and wallows over within those bushes, tumbles and turns fast and tears their clothes. Untenderly from the top they tilt together, at times Arthur over and other while under. From the height of the hill unto the hard rock, they feign never ere they fall at the flood marshes. But Arthur with a dagger eagerly smites and hits ever in the hulk up to the hilt. The thief in his death throes so throttles him fiercely that three ribs in his side he thrusts in sunder. Then Sir Caius the king unto the king starts, said, Alas, we are lorn, my lord is confounded, overfallen with a fiend, we are foul befallen. We must be forfeited in faith and exiled forever. They heave up his hauberk then and handle thereunder his hide and his haunch too, on high to the shoulders, his flank and his loins and his fair sides, both his back and his breast and his bright arms. They were glad that they found no flesh injured, and for that journey made joy these gentle knights. Now certes, says Sir Bedivere, it seems, by my lord, 
He seeks saints but seldom, the sorer he grips, that thus drags this saint's corpse out of these high cliffs to carry forth such a carl to enclose him in silver. By Michael of such a man, I have much wonder that ever our sovereign Lord suffers him in heaven. If all saints be such that serve our Lord, I shall never no saint be by my father's soul. Then jokes the bold king at Bedivere's words, This saint have I sought, so help me our Lord. Forthwith draw out my sword and broach him to the heart. Be sure of this, sergeant, he has me sore grieved. I fought not with such a frake this fifteen winter, but in the mountains of Araby I met such another. He was more forceful by far than had I ever found. Had not my fortune been fair, dead would I lie. Anon, strike off his head and stake it thereafter. Give it to thy squire, for he is well horsed. Bear it to Sir Howell, that is in hard bonds, and bid him heart him well, his enemy is destroyed. Then bear it to Barfleur, and brace it in iron, and set it on the barbican to show to men. My brand and my broad shield upon the grass lie, on the crest of the crag where we first encountered, and the club thereby, all of pure iron, that many Christians has killed in Constantine's lands. Fare to the promontory and fetch me that weapon, and let us go to our fleet in flood where it waits. If thou will have any treasure, take what thee likes. I'll have the kirtle and the club. I covet naught else. Now they carry to the crag these comely knights, and brought him the broad shield and his bright weapon. The coat and the club also come with Sir Caius himself, and carries with the conqueror to show to the kings. Yet in secret the king held close to himself, while a clean day from the cloud climbed aloft. So, we've seen two representations of the giant of Mont Saint-Michel. As I said earlier, there are many more, in several other languages and several other types of texts, and the interpretive conversation around this scene and its various forms is enormous. You can find a list of the sources I relied on most for this episode on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. And because we've had two texts, I'm going to bring us to a rather rapid conclusion this time. Uh, so let's look at our riddle. It was. Large is my head, within the parts are small. One foot I have, but that is monstrous tall, and sleep I give, though I sleep not at all. Sounds a bit like a giant, or some kind of mythological monster. But this uh, is a description from another riddle of Symphosius, and it is, of course, of the poppy, which I'm told in some species can grow to be four feet tall with a flower six inches across which is a kind of giant in its own right. And now we need a mystery word for next time. Our word will be metnast. It does not mean to meet something nasty, though it looks and sounds that way. Uh, and I hope you don't meet with anything nasty this Halloween, or at least not too nasty. But if you do, you can tell us about it on Twitter, at MDT podcast, letter M, letter D, letter T podcast, all smushed together. Or you can email me at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. And as I just mentioned, you can get more information about this and every episode at our website, medievaldeathtrip.com. Until next time, here's to a Halloween with minimal tricks and maximal treats. It's time for us to bravely head off into year four of Medieval Death Trip and whatever adventures await us on that road. And so, away. 
He buggered off. So he has, he's scarpered. Brave the Robin ran away. No! Bravely ran away, away. I didn't! When danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail. No! His brave Sir Robin turned about. I didn't! He chickened out, bravely taking I never did! He beat a very brave retreat. Oh, Lord! Brave Sir Robin! Oh,